Um, I heard Bethany's a big fan of it. She really enjoys it. Um, all right, well, I'm from Florida. I know many of you are from other parts of the world that, that uh, don't ever see snow. I saw snow like once growing in my 20 years living in Florida. It was like half an inch or something, and it was like a snowpocalypse for us in Florida. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I'm not used to it. I don't like it. I've been living up in the, here in the Northeast for about five, six years, and I, I still can't get used to it. So, um, But anyway, we are here. Thank you for being faithful to come out in the snow. I know the snow kept a lot of our church family away today, uh, and we've got some folks that are still traveling as well. Um, I do want to ask you to be in prayer for uh, one of our members, um, just an unspoken request, who's facing a, a pretty serious problem, um, and uh, just trying to deal with some, some difficult life issues. So um, I'm going to lead us in prayer for this individual. If you could just pray along and uh, keep this person uh, in mind throughout, uh, throughout the course of this week. Lord God, I pray for um, our brother. I just pray that you would lift him up, that you would encourage him, that you would strengthen him, uh, that you would help him to know that he is not alone, and that your will would be done in his life, and that your power would be made manifest that he would be drawn closer to you through what he's going through. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we are continuing our series in 1 John. I believe this is our third sermon in 1 John. We're calling this True Life. True Life. Now, just a quick uh, housekeeping note here. Next week, we're going to take a break from our series in 1 John. <clears throat> Kevin will be preaching a uh, series uh, or a sermon in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We'll be talking about racial reconciliation, talking about justice, some things, themes related to that. So we'll get back to First John uh, in uh, two weeks from today. So right now, uh, I want to remind you what First John is all about. And I should have this verse up on the screen. First John chapter 5, verse 13. A lot of times when you want to know the point of a book that's written... Nowadays, you go to the preface, you go to the introduction, the first couple of pages tell you what the book is all about. But back in the day, when Paul and John and Jesus and all those guys lived, typically, not always, but a lot of the time, the way that they explained what a book was all about was they would do it like on the last page or the last chapter. And that's what John does in the book of 1 John. He, he talks for five chapters, and then with only a few verses to go, he says, by the way, this was the point of the whole book. And this is it. I have written these things to you who believe. So he's writing to Christians. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. As we've talked about, there was this church that was feeling overwhelmed because of what had happened. There were this group of individuals who had left the church, gone out from the church, and they were teaching these really weird ideas about Jesus. Namely, that Jesus was God, but he was not a human being. And it really, it really ripped that church apart. And these people left. They were trusted individuals. They were maybe leaders. And they're going out and preaching this other idea. And so those who are left are like, have we got it all wrong? Are, are we wrong about who Jesus is? Are we wrong about everything that's going on? Are we the ones who have true life? Or are those guys who left the ones who have true life? And so what John, who knew Jesus and knew that he was a flesh and blood human being, writes this book to this church, to those who remain, to say, hey, take heart. You guys, you guys who are left, 
you guys who are believing that Jesus is both God and man all at the same time, you are the ones who have eternal life. So the whole book of 1 John is designed to reassure those who believe in the Son that they possess true life, that they possess eternal life. Now, as John's argument unfolds over the course of several chapters, he's going to talk about a lot of different things. Last week, we talked about light, and we learned that those who are walking with God, those who are genuinely children of God, are going to walk in the light. doesn't mean that you're always going to do the right thing. You're going to struggle. You're going to sin. We talked about 1 John 1, 9 last week. But the typical pattern of your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, should be that you're walking in the light, not in the darkness. This week, John shifts the focus a little bit to say, here's another evidence that you're a follower of Jesus. Here's another thing that's going to be true in your life if you are one of those who remain, that believe in the Son and possess true life. And it's this idea of love. Today's sermon is a question. The title is a question. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? I see some of you nodding. You recognize the song. Here's a quote from Dr. King, who wrote these words when he was in prison. He had this famous sermon, Loving Your Enemies, right? And when he, on one occasion when he was thrown in prison for pursuing civil rights for African Americans, he decided to revisit his sermon, see if he could edit it, see if he could improve upon it. Now, I don't know about you, but like if I'm thrown in prison unjustly, I think I'd be like trying to phone in to CNN and get like an interview, try to get something trending on Twitter to like generate like a groundswell of support to get me out of prison. But that's not what Dr. King did. He's like, I'm going to work on my sermon about loving my enemies. It was a pretty countercultural moment. And here's what he said. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Think about that for a second. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Why could he say that? Well, maybe, just maybe, because it was the love of Jesus Christ who had transformed sinners who are described as the enemies of God. It's that love of Jesus Christ that makes us friends. We began our worship service with a song, I'm a friend of God. But the Bible says that before we came to Jesus, we were his enemies. That's strong language, but it's in the Bible. I'm not making it up. We were enemies with God, but the love of Jesus Christ manifested on the cross, transformed us from enemies to friends. So what has love got to do with it? Everything. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. That's the big idea of this sermon. If you take away anything from this sermon, take away this. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. So I'm going to read. We'll have the verses on the screen. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3. We're going to go all the way through verse 17. Okay, so follow along with me as I'm reading. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. 
This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John looks at this church that's been rocked by this internal conflict as these folks have departed. And he tells them love has everything to do with the Christian life. Love is at the heart of our identity. Love is at the heart of who we have been called to be because we are imitating our loving God. Now, I should have this on the screen. We define a disciple here at Mosaic. A disciple of Jesus is someone who learns the teachings of Jesus, imitates his behavior, and makes more disciples. So there's three important parts of being a follower of Jesus. One is that you learn what he said. Okay, you're doing that right now. Hopefully, as long as I'm teaching you the truth, um, you're you're learning what he said. Uh, You imitate his behavior. We become more like Jesus by living as he lived. And then we make more disciples. We share the gospel to bring more people into the family of God. The first two out of these three ideas of discipleship are in this passage. As we talk about love, we're going to see that we're learning what Jesus taught us about love. And then we're imitating his loving lifestyle. Both of these ideas are here. So I want us to think about learning and imitating God in the way that he has loved us, in the way that he calls us to love others. John talked about love in three different ways. Love God, love one another, don't love the world. Those are my three points. They're not rocket science. Uh, This is not super complicated. John just said, love God, love one another, don't love the world. So what's love got to do with it? Love has everything to do with it. John drives home this idea of love over and over and over again, drawing on some of the things that he wrote from his earlier book, the Gospel of John. He talks a lot about love. So let's take them one at a time. First off, we're supposed to love God. In verse 3, John said, We know that we have come to know him. We know that we know if we keep his commands. So how do we know that we know God? If we what? If we keep his commands, okay? So what are his commands? Well, one chapter later, John explains what the commands of Jesus are. And there were two. In 1 John chapter 3, he said the commands of Jesus, the commands of God, is to believe in Jesus 
to love one another. So what is the command? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to believe in Jesus and we're supposed to love one another. This is not to earn our way into heaven. This is not our, 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 an attempt to earn favor with God. No, that is granted to us unconditionally without merit. It's a free gift. Oh, we love God. We obey him. We believe in him and we love our brothers. And this is evidence. This is proof that we are walking in the light that John talked about last week. He says, whoever says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is the idea of imitation. You claim that you follow Jesus. You claim that you're in his family. You claim that you know him. You must live as Jesus did. There's a a lot of folks, perhaps you and I have been among their number from time to time, who will claim that we're following Jesus, but we're not living anything remotely like the way Jesus lived. So what's somebody, what's your neighbor supposed to do with that, right? When they they see you going to church on Sunday, or they hear you playing gospel music loudly out your window, but then they see the lifestyle that you're living, or they see how you're being unethical or, or whatever. And our neighbors get confused when we do stuff like that. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't mean you're not a Christian or that you're not a follower of Jesus, but it definitely confuses our neighbors, those who are outside the faith, those whose job it is for us to share the gospel with. And it still is true that John says, This is how we know. This is how we have assurance that we are in that family of God when our claims to follow Jesus match up with our lifestyle so that our words match our actions. I'm not saying anybody's perfect. I don't think John is saying anybody's perfect. In fact, he just got done giving us 1 John 1, 9, saying that we're all going to need to confess our sins. And if anybody claims to be perfect, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. John had just said all of that stuff. But here he's like, but you know, we're not supposed to sin. And if we say that we're following Jesus, but we're habitually living in sin, maybe we're not actually following Jesus. Maybe we've never actually become a part of the family of God. Maybe we're never actually been converted. This is how we know we are in him. We must live as Jesus did. That's imitation. This is what the disciples did for three years. They imitated Jesus. They followed him around for three years doing what he did. They learned to pray like Jesus prayed. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven. And it's like, then he put the words, the very words in their mouths, right? What is he doing? He's he's saying, imitate this. Say these words. Live like this. And they got into controversy with the Pharisees because the disciples of Jesus were imitating him. And so they were following his practices. They were doing things on the Sabbath when the followers of the Pharisees weren't. And so the Pharisees were like, why are your disciples doing this? And they're just imitating Jesus. They're just mimicking his behaviors. (laughs) Early, Early afternoon today, 
um, we were getting ready for church. I looked at Malia. We were standing there. I don't remember what we were doing. I was like, I'm going to go brush my teeth because we're going to church. Got to get ready. She said, I want to brush my teeth. It's like, okay, come on. So we go in the bathroom together and we put the toothbrush on there. And then she's, she said, uh, her and Xavier have the exact same toothbrush. It's a minion toothbrush from Despicable Me. And I was trying to remember which one was which. And I remembered that Sonia had put uh, like, um, I think, uh, fingernail polish on one to identify it. But I couldn't remember which, which one was which. And I was like, Malia, do you remember which toothbrush is yours? And she said, I have the red one because it's like mommy. Mommy has a red one. And so I have a red one. And I was like, here's Malia. First, she's trying to imitate her daddy because her daddy is brushing his teeth. So she's going to brush her teeth. And then, but then she's got a red toothbrush because her mommy has a red toothbrush. What is, what is a child's greatest joy and delight if they have a good relationship with their parents? Imitation. So Malia and I brushed our teeth together for a minute or so. And, and, I was like, I was thinking about discipleship as I was brushing my teeth. Because it's like, this is what I'm about to talk about. I'm about to talk about imitating Jesus. That's all the disciples did. They brushed their teeth like Jesus did. More or less. Except on more complicated and more important things. But you get my drift, I think. You understand what I'm saying. That's imitation. That's key to discipleship. What we are doing and what John is calling the church to do as he's writing to them, is to imitate the lifestyle of Jesus. He said, this is how you know. You know that you know that you're in the faith. You know that you know that you're in the family of God when you are imitating the lifestyle of our God. Because it's not that God is some remote deity and we're like, man, if, if God were one of us, I wonder how he would live. Man, we'll just never know. No, actually, we do know because God became one of us and he showed us how to live. He showed us exactly how to live. So the Christian life is about imitating the lifestyle of Jesus, imitating those behaviors, mimicking our master. In this passage, in particular, we mimic him in love. We love God because he first loved us. We love God because he has poured out his love for us on the cross. Last week, we talked about this idea called propitiation right at the very beginning of this chapter. The idea that that God poured out his wrath upon the son, upon Jesus Christ, and that the son was judged in our place and that the father's wrath was satisfied. That language was actually in the last song that we sang, Cornerstone. The father's wrath was satisfied as Jesus, the son, bore our sin and our guilt and our shame. This was the the best and truest and most noblest picture of love poured out for us on the cross. And then John says, love God because you have been loved first. We don't don't love God just kind of selflessly because we're good people. No, we love because we have been loved. It can be very humbling when uh, this has happened to me before, when I'm not behaving as a good husband and... I'm not loving appropriately, but then I'm loved unconditionally when I'm, especially like when I'm in the middle of not being loving and it's like, why are you doing that? Like I'm being a jerk. Don't love me like that right now. And it just humbles you, right? Because you're, you're loved when you don't deserve it. That was what the cross was. That's what the entire Christian life is. We love not because we're awesome 
We love because we have been loved by somebody else. His name is Jesus. So we love God, but we also love one another. Look at verse 7. I should have it on the screen. He said, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Then it sounds like he contradicts himself because then he goes, yet I am writing you a new command. Now, that kind of jarred me at first because he says, uh, I'm writing something that's old. It's not new, but then I'm writing something that's new that's not old. So what is John, what is John doing here? Well, he's going back to the gospel of John, okay? Where Jesus says, I, he's talking to his disciples, right? He's teaching them how to love. He's calling them to imitate his lifestyle, his pattern of living. And he says, I'm giving you a new command. Love one another. John was one of that group. He was one of the 12 original disciples who first heard that new command. And John, I don't know, I guess it was about 60 years later. John's an old man. He says, friends, speaking to the members of this ancient church that he's writing to, he says, friends, I'm not writing a new command, but it's an old one. It's about 60 years old. But yeah, then it's like he's writing. He's like, but I mean, it is kind of new. It's about 60 years old. I don't know if you call that new or old, but it goes back to this idea. And he's, I'm pretty sure he's referencing that command that Jesus gave to his disciples because Jesus calls it a new command. And John is using the exact language, the exact lingo, the exact terminology to repeat it. He says, there's this new command, but it's an ancient command, but it's also new. And it's to love one another. He says, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. You remember we talked about light last week? We talked about how Jesus was the light, the light that dawned upon the nations. He says, this light is coming. The darkness is passing away. And in the, in the light of Jesus, we see this new command to love one another. Now, I think we should ask ourselves, who's the one another? Does that mean... Love your neighbor, love your roommate, love the person on the train or the bus, or love your coworker. Well, you could say that it's everybody, but I think the next verse kind of defines it just a little bit more narrowly for us. When John, writing to a group of Christians, says love one another, here's what he means. Look at the next verse. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So imagine with me for a second that there's this conflict in this church that John has written to. These folks have left. And apparently they did so under really bad terms. They're teaching these wild theories about Jesus. Everybody who's left behind knows that that's wrong. But apparently these dudes who are leaving are being really obnoxious jerks about it. 
They're not loving one another. And so everybody who's left behind is, is, is feeling bruised and battered and discouraged and wounded and scarred by their fellow, supposedly their fellow Christians. It really hurts to be hurt by someone that you love, right? We're all used to being hurt. But it hurts more when it's someone that you love. Is that, is that not true? People are rude to me on the train all the time. I might get mad about it for like 10 seconds, but I never see them again. It's not, it's not like it's going to last and stick with me. But like when somebody that you love, when someone that's in your life hurts you, hurts a lot worse. That was the situation in this church. They were like, these are the people I went to church with. These were the people that we lifted our hands and we sang and we clapped. These are the people who we, we shared a meal in their homes. But then they've gone out and they've preached this wild idea about Jesus and we can't be with them anymore because they are attacking our Lord and it's produced this very painful schism, this painful split in the church over the person of Jesus Christ. And, and the guys who left have been really rude and really mean and really obnoxious about it. And the people left behind are hurt. John said, here's how you know, one way that you know that you're in the faith. You love your brother and your sister. He's not talking about your biological brother and and sister. I have a sister who lives in Nashville. I'm supposed to love her, but that's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about your fellow Christian. Can you love your fellow Christian? If you can't love your fellow Christian, you might not be in the faith. He says, if you claim to be in the light, you claim to be you're following Jesus, but you hate your brother or your sister. He's like, there's no question about it. You're still in the darkness. You're not walking in the light. But if you love your brother and your sister, then you know that you live in the light. And there's nothing that can make you stumble. Nothing that can make you stumble. Now, I'm sure if, uh, if we did an open mic right now, we'd all be able to recite maybe lists upon lists of people who have hurt us. Is that fair? We've probably, we, we've got lists of people who have hurt us. Maybe some of them are Christians. And maybe that's what confuses you the most. Maybe that's what hurts you the most. Keep in mind, there may be somebody else who's a Christian who's got you on their list of people who have hurt them the most. It goes both ways. We tend to just think of it in terms of us being hurt, of us being unloved. But maybe the other person feels like you haven't loved them either. John said, we know that we know that we're in the faith when we are characterized by a love for our fellow Christian. Yeah, John would not dispute the idea that we're called to love the person on the bus. You're called to love your roommate. You're called to love... Uh, your neighbor, you're called to love, your coworker, your classmate, everybody. We love everybody. Because Jesus in a separate passage said, love your neighbor. But here he's not talking about loving your neighbor. He's talking about loving those in the family of God. If you're characterized by a lack of love, if that's your perpetual lifestyle, then John would say, you may not be in the faith. 
Maybe you're not actually walking with Jesus Christ. Maybe you are claiming to walk in the light, but really you're stumbling around in the darkness. You're bumping into stuff because you can't see where you're going because you're in the dark. He's not saying that you might not have a moment where you struggle with bitterness or even a season where you're struggling with forgiving and loving a fellow Christian who has hurt you. I realize that wounds run deep and forgiveness is a... It's not like a one time, like I forgive and then it's over and we're good forever, but it's like an ongoing daily lifestyle that I choose to forgive. I choose to release. I choose to love. John said, if we're in the faith, this is how we're characterized. We're characterized by love first for God and then for one another. And that, that is the main thing that sets us apart from the world. We love one another. The early church was characterized by love, right? We've, we've talked about some of the passages in the book of Acts where they, like, uh, they, they, they sell their stuff. Like, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to sell my field. I'm going to take care of my brothers and my sisters. They can't make rent. I'm going to take care of them. They, they, they you know, don't have any money for the subway. I'm going to take care of them. They pitched in together, and they had this radical one another kind of love. A love that transcended boundaries. You know, the Roman Empire was just as divided as modern America is today. But there was this radical revolutionary thing that happened about 10 years after Jesus walked the earth. Groups of people started congregating, people who didn't look at all like one another, didn't come from the same background or walk of life at all. There would, there would be this, these groups of about 30 people clustered in a home, and, and there would be slaves and There would be masters, there would be rich, and there would be poor. There would be Romans, and there would be Jews. There would be ex-Pharisees, and there would be God-fearers. There would be men, and there would be women. That didn't happen in the Roman world. That did not happen in Greek society. That did not happen in ancient Israel. But it happened in the church. The cross breaks down all those barriers and calls us to love across the divide. To love people who are not like us. To love people who may not think like us, may not eat like us, may not do anything like us, but we happen to be family. We happen to be brothers and sisters, so we are called to love one another. And this is how we know that we're in the faith. Because we're willing to be part of a community like that, where we realize, I may bump my toes, I may, I may uh, stumble into some situations that I don't know what to do, but I am going to love unconditionally across the divide, and I will be loved, and I will love, because that's what we do. John said, this is how you know. Those guys that left the church preaching that Jesus wasn't really a human being, they only had it half right. Because he was God and he was man. Those guys who left, they were not loving. And I think what John is saying is, that tells you that those guys who left were never part of us at all. They were never true followers of Jesus at all. You see, you can come to church and you can get dressed up in your church clothes. I know we don't really do that here. But like some churches, like they get really dressed up, right? You get all dressed up in your church clothes. You drop a load of cash in the offering plate, you get baptized, you clap, you raise your hands, you put on a good Sunday show, 
But you're not actually following Jesus. You're not actually walking with him. You're not actually part of his fam. And when you die, you're not going to spend eternity with him or with his family. How do we know? John is not, 1 John is not written to cause us to doubt. It's, called, it's written to provide us with assurance. How do we know that we're in the faith? We love God and we love one another. But the third thing is we don't love the world. So the first two were positive. This one is negative. We love God. We love one another. Now we don't love the world. What does John say? He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John is very clear in saying, don't love the world or anything in the world. Now, I remember when I was little, I used to be confused by this verse because I, I thought of the world in terms of like this sphere called planet Earth, right? It's like, wait, what, what do you mean I'm not supposed to love the world? Like we live on this planet. Um, so just in case you're confused like me, hopefully nobody is, but like I was confused as a kid. He's not talking about planet Earth, right? The world is a, is a way of referring to this whole system of living that is opposed to God. You see, you and I, we are part of this countercultural community called the church. But the rest of the world is not part of that countercultural community, right? They are mainstream culture, the mainstream life. We live in it, we exist in it, but according to this verse, we're not supposed to love it. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, you don't really love the Father. Some of the stuff that John says really hurts. It's like, you, would you mind like putting some nuance in there, John, or mind equivocating a little bit? But like, no, he's just throwing shade. He's like, if you, if you love the world, you don't love the Father. Like, okay. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Three things that he, that he talks about. He talks about the lust of the flesh, or it could be translated the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride of life, probably the best way to think of this is the pride of possessions. Okay? I think that's the best translation of this. Um, so what he's saying here is three things. What we feel, what we want, what we see, and the stuff that we desire, that pride of life, the pride that we get when through our materialistic way of life, we have amassed a lot of stuff and we're able to be proud about it, about what we have pursued and what we have gotten. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says it doesn't come from the Father, from the world. I've got a picture here of a fruit. Who can tell me what this fruit is? Pomegranate, okay? So, uh, the, reason, the reason I have a picture of a pomegranate up here, I was going to try to go buy some, but I ran out of time. I'm just going to try to bring at least one in here. But um, according to Jewish tradition, we have, really have no way of knowing if this is true, but according to Jewish tradition, the pomegranate was the forbidden fruit that Eve ate off of the tree and that she gave to Adam, and then Adam ruined everything for everybody, and it instituted this curse. Now, in, in uh, popular... Culture, it's the apple, right? Eve ate the apple. Um, 
I, we really have no idea. It could have been a banana. We have some bananas on the back table. Uh, maybe it was those, or, or maybe it was peaches or pears. I don't know. Uh, or maybe it's a fruit that's long since extinct. I don't know. But ancient Jewish tradition says that it was a pomegranate. So that's why I wanted to put this picture up here. Because a lot of people have pointed out that what Eve did when she ate that forbidden fruit was she gave in to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What did she do? The desires of the flesh. It was like, oh man, that would, that would taste really good. Like, she starts salivating. And she's like looking at it. And in fact, it says that it was desirable to look at. And then she's like, we could be like God's. If we do this, that's what the serpent's telling me. We could be like gods. That's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. What does Eve do? She falls for all three of these sinful desires, these tendencies that emerge from within our own heart. John said those things come from the world. They don't come from the father. These are these are the three things that we're going to have to do battle with on a regular and consistent basis. If we are followers of Jesus. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So, let's make it real. Let's make it practical. Desires of the flesh, those things that are tangible, those things that are fleshly, those things that you can touch and feel. Maybe it's a temptation to overeat. I struggle with that. The desires of the flesh. Maybe it's the desires of the eyes. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're lingering, speaking to you guys here, when the Dallas Cowboys come on for the playoff game and their cheerleaders are on display, you don't turn your head. That's, John says, that's not from the Father. That desire that you have to look at that, it's not from the Father. That desire is from the world. Or the pride of life. The, the desire to say, I'm going to live my life in such a way that I will pursue stuff and accumulate it no matter what the cost. Now, there's probably lots of other examples of these three types of sins, these three things that we could pull up. But the point is that these don't come from the Father. They come from the world. And John said, we don't love the world, at least not if we're following Jesus. We love the Father. Not the world. Does that mean you're never going to struggle over here? No. Of course, that's not what it means. That's why 1 John 1, 9 was just a few verses before this. But it does mean that our lives should be characterized by not loving the world and instead loving the Father. Because, he says, the world and its desires, they pass away. Does you no good to love that stuff. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this guy named Ignatius. He was discipled by the Apostle John, and he was one of the pastors of the church in Syrian Antioch around the turn of the first century, about 1900 years ago. And he was on his way to Rome to be executed in the Colosseum. You've probably seen movies where they did the gladiator games and they brought the lions in or they brought the soldiers in. And he was going to die because he was preaching about Jesus. And there were these Christians who were trying to appeal through the legal system to get him released. Here's what he said. I've got the quote up on the screen. He said, I fear your kindness, which may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, 
it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. What's he saying here? He's saying, I'm trying to imitate Jesus who laid down his life as a, as a martyr of sorts, and I want to go follow him as a martyr in the Colosseum. Now, the point of me sharing this is not to say that we're all called to be martyrs, okay? That's not the point. But the point is, here was a man who did not love the world. There were these people trying to get him off the hook to literally save his life. He said, no, please don't get me off the hook. I'm trying to follow Jesus to death. Here is a man who doesn't love the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of his eyes and the pride of life have not pulled so much at his soul that he's forgotten how to follow his master. He's more in love with Jesus than he is the world. And so he says, please, stop doing your lawyer thing. I've been called to go and die in the Colosseum. As far as we know from history, that's exactly what happened to Ignatius because he was a man who loved the Father and not the world because he understood that the world passes away, but those who do the will of the Father abide forever. So where do we go from here? What are our next steps? We don't have a card for you today. I apologize for that. We should have one next week, but three suggested next steps. Maybe you want to jot one of these down on your phone and bring it up in missional family this week, how God is speaking to you. First off, I want to propose that we embrace the loving gift that God gave. Maybe you're here and you're not totally sure that you're in the faith. We, we keep talking about being inside and outside and, and walking with God versus not walking with God, being in the light versus not being in the light. Maybe you're hearing this sermon and you're like, Stephen, my, uh, my life is over here. I'm, I'm loving the things of the world more than I'm loving God. Does this mean that I'm not in the faith? It might mean that, and I think that would warrant a conversation with your missional family leader. Embrace the loving gift that God gave. We talked about it last week. Jesus laid down his life on the cross for us as our substitute. The Father's wrath was satisfied as everything on him was laid. If you're not in the faith, if you're not in the fam, now's the time to embrace him and embrace that gift that he gave. Second, choose to love your fellow Christians. I can't tell you how many times this week this has been a struggle for me. Satan tends to attack uh, me on the particular things that I'm preaching on. And it's like, uh, I, don't, well, I don't know if Satan's attacking me or if God's just testing me to see if I'll do it. Uh, but all week long, it's been like I've had opportunities to, to struggle with this um, and I've had to commit every day. I am going to love my fellow Christians. I am going to love, not because I'm so incredible, but because I have been loved first. Maybe there's somebody who's a fellow Christian that you're harboring bitterness toward. When you see them, when you meet them, when you see their posts on Facebook, your first thoughts are not warm and fuzzy, but full of hate. If you're a follower of Jesus, God calls you to let that go and to love your brother's and your sisters. Third, to resist the pull of the world. To make a conscious and concentrated effort with the help of your family to love the Father more than you love the world. Because that's what he's called us to do. So, what's love got to do with it? Everything. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. 
We exist because of love, and we exist to love. Because we have been loved with a almost reckless abandon by our Father, our good, good Father, and by His Son, who shed His blood for us on the cross, and by His Spirit, who pursues us relentlessly. Even after we come to Him, and then we wander away, but then He pulls us back, because He never stops pursuing us, because He never stops loving us. That's how we've been loved. And that's how we're called to love. Let's pray. Every eye closed, uh, nobody looking around. Our band is going to come and lead us uh, in one final song. So I'd like to go ahead and ask if you're a member of the worship team to prepare to lead us. We're going to celebrate communion together as a family in just a few moments. It's an opportunity for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that he made for, among others, he made for this family. It's a great time to consider whether or not you are in the faith, whether or not you are part of God's family. It's a great time to consider whether or not you are walking in the light. Is your life characterized by love or is it not? If you're sure that you're a Christian, but you're struggling with love, maybe you want to sit there and, and instead of singing, you just want to pray and reflect. Ask God to help you to forgive. Ask God to help you to love. Maybe you're sitting there and you realize that you're, you're way too in love with the world. And you need to ask God to forgive you. And with the help of your brothers and sisters, you need to start loving him more than the world. I don't know how God is speaking to you, but we're going to pray, we're going to sing, and then we're going to observe communion together. Lord God, I'm grateful that you are a God